From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is Connection Interrupted. Connection Interrupted is a weekly show focusing on individuals across all walks of life whose plans and journeys were interrupted, disconnected, or rerouted. These are their stories told in their words of the obstacles they faced, the challenges they overcame, and the role technology played both as an instigator and as an instrument for positive growth and change in their lives. Quick, who's the best boss you've ever worked for? The best leader in a crisis? For me, it would be the navigation officer in my submarine when I was in the Navy. He was calm under pressure. I can't think of a single time he yelled or cursed during a patrol. And trust me, that's as rare as a unicorn in the Navy. He always treated his team as professionals even though we were just kids in our early 20s. And he had graduated top of his class from the Naval Academy. He went on to get his master's from Harvard. After all these years, I've never forgotten the way he led, and I've tried to emulate his leadership style myself. Scott Monty's had a similar experience. Now, Scott's a successful leader in his own right. He was the global head of communications and multimedia for Ford Motor Company from 2008 to 2014. But during this time, Scott had the opportunity both to work for and observe a management legend in the making. He was able to witness Alan Malawi, the innovative CEO of Ford, who led the company through the Great Recession and he transformed the company from a car company to a technology mobility company, as Alan put it. Scott had a first row seat in witnessing a leadership masterclass for six years. And that's what we focus on in this interview. Scott reflects on leadership lessons from Alan Malawi and how those can be applied in the modern era. This is his story. So, so what is Brain Trust? Give me the, the, the short spiel on what the company does. Well, we are made up of former uh, brand executives, people that have spent their times uh, making a difference inside big brands in some kind of digital role. And we come from a variety of backgrounds, could be communications, could be marketing, could be customer experience, customer service. But what we all realized along the way is that in each of those silos where we resided, we could see some incredible insights about customers. However, when you go in the back end, very few enterprises are sharing customer data across all of these organizations. And our goal is we help executives grapple with digital transformation and, and preparing for the future is how do we create the golden customer record and create a golden customer experience to help them be more effective in what they do? It's almost as if you read my notes. I'm so happy, Scott Monty, <laughs> with that with that description. Yeah, l- let me explain why. Because um, for this podcast, we're going to veer off the norm a little bit. And I want to talk about leadership in the modern age and the digital age. Leadership when it comes to large organizations, large corporates, such as where you came from and, and your team, politics and, and society as a whole. And this is why you are incredibly well positioned to do this. Um, you've, you've witnessed this firsthand. And for our listeners, I want to talk about that background a little bit. You, you actually were the head of, of social for Ford Motor Company, correct? Uh, that is correct. And from what period of time, this is my favorite part, when did you join? I spent uh, the major- well, all of my career up until that point in Boston and never really saw a need to leave the city. 
Uh, and then one day in late 2007, early 2008, I got a call from Ford that they were creating a new position. And would I be interested in speaking with them? I, I came highly recommended and uh, they would like to speak with me. And you have to understand, this is, again, 10, 10 plus years ago. Um, even then, it was, it was possible to work remotely. And I, or virtually, and that's what I was doing at the time with a, with an agency that specialized in social strategy for big brands. So I immediately said, "Well, do I have to move to Detroit?" And <laughs> they sheepishly said, mm, uh, "Yeah, you know, this is it's kind of an executive role, uh, and and it's kind of essential that you're here because you're going to be influencing a lot." And, and I passed on that first go around. Long story short. Uh, we reconnected uh, not too many months thereafter. Uh, I was just gobsmacked with the plans that Ford had in place, the progress that it was making or was about to be making, and was seriously impressed with the leadership there. And I basically said, where do you sign? So I began in July of 2008, and 10 days later, Ford filed its largest ever quarterly loss to the tune of $8.7 billion. And... That pretty much was the beginning of the global carpocalypse, where if you're not up to speed on your business history, the entire, U not just U.S., but global uh, automotive industry had a meltdown. And we're about at uh, just a little over half as many cars sold per year as we're at right now at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. Yeah, you, uh, you timing is everything. <laughs> so you moved to Detroit, um, uh, my hometown. Um, but yeah, going from Boston to Detroit at just as uh, the world economic system was collapsing, joining an organization that uh, I find interesting with Ford. So I'm doing a little bit of research of this. Um, um, Alan Malawi had joined in 2006, so two years prior to you. When he had joined, it is, he has a famous saying, something along the lines of Ford had been working its way toward collapse for, for over 40 years. So it wasn't something that was new. I love that. It was an interesting quote. But when he joined, they already had a whopping 25% of its market share loss since 1990. That's incredible. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure that all came up during your research, of course. <laughs> Soaring labor costs, market share loss. Um, I bet you were in Detroit going, what the heck did I just do? Well, that actually happened before I, I took the job. You know, I... And looking across all the automakers, looked at Ford and said, well, this is like, <laughs> this is like the loser of the bunch. <laughs> um, but to me, in, in speaking with the team there, first of all, knowing that they acknowledged that fact, uh, that was important because the big three, as they were known then, had this reputation for being myopic and for not understanding anything outside of not only the industry, but just outside of the U.S. auto industry. And the fact that they acknowledged their errors, that they had a plan to move forward, uh, they were investing heavily in technology. To me, it looked like there was only one way to go with Ford, and that was up. You know, And, and when I announced that I was taking the job, uh, friends and colleagues uh, basically uh, cajoled me. They said, hey, What's, what's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you take a job with a company like Toyota, like a winner? And I said, well, this is a big career move for me, you know, uprooting the family from Massachusetts to move to Michigan, 
um, going into an industry that I really have had no experience in before, other than my family having owned a 1929 Model A Ford. If I'm going to be part of something, I want to be part of a comeback story. I don't simply want to ride on coattails and maintain a market position. And I think there's great opportunity here. And at the time, and this again is early to mid-2008, I said by mid-2010, you will see Ford really where it needs to be in terms of getting its product out there and, and fine-tuning its financial position. And you'll see a, a surge in interest in the digital and social space. And when those two lines intersect between Ford and digital and social, that's where the magic's going to happen. My instinct was correct. The timing was a little off because it happened a little bit earlier than that. But it gave us so much forward momentum and gave us so many opportunities to do creative, interesting, and market-leading things regardless of industry, not just in the auto industry. Yeah, whatever crystal ball you use, I want to get a hold of that thing <laughs> so I can bet on the Super Bowl. But I mean, it's... Uh, but you're, I, I agree. I mean, I've, I think we... We, we have that fog of history where we forget what the world was like, you know? Um, you look at 2008, um, social media, Twitter, uh, Facebook and everything. I mean, they were growing, but I think Twitter really took off with the election um, with President Obama in the first election is really when it, 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 uh, it hit the ground and really saw, I think, mass adoption. But the concept of integrating marketing and customer engagement via social channels still wasn't that big. It's, it's not like it is today. And so to take that challenge on with a global player in an industry that was getting beat up in all ends, we talk about leadership, you deserve a lot of kudos there, Scott. Well, you know, we, we, had, we had an amazing team and, you know, we had opportunities that not everyone would have. Um, and, and it's funny because I just posted something on Facebook this morning. It was a uh, you know, one of those on this day reminders, uh, there was some kind of um, either live chat or uh, some sort of seminar uh, or, or uh, industry event that was going on. And the Detroit Free Press was covering it. And Alan Mulally was there. And, and the quote was from him saying, social media changed Ford's image. The most important thing is to get a conversation going about your product. Alan espoused all of that, and he set the tone for everything that was going on at the company. And our job on the digital and social side was simply to align ourselves with the business strategy and to fall uh, directly in line with what, what he was saying. And, and he gave us the ability to go and do all that stuff and just be consistent. That's what leaders do. That's that's a nice shout out, by the way, like a nice warm hug, um, if you will, for the work that you did. So when you read about um, Alan and the, and the work, I call him Alan because I saw him speak one time. So it gives me the right to do that. Excellent keynote speaker, by the way. I think one of the best I've seen. You were responsible for implementing a lot of the the leadership direction that he gave. So you had to execute against the plan. So I know there's three areas that I consistently read about. That, that he instituted within the company. So, and these are the three I'd like to talk with you. The concept of one forward, um, personal accountability, which is uh, obviously a huge one, and then messaging, right? The, the brand itself. And 
And so this concept of one Ford, which I'll be blunt, when it came out initially, I thought, oh God, what a horrible name. I was dead wrong, by the way. <laughs> my hands up right now. I'm admitting I read that one completely wrong. Can you describe what one Ford was and, and how do you execute against that from a messaging standpoint? Yeah. Well, one Ford was the, was the shorthand for the company's master plan. And Alan knew that it had to be clear and concise and relatable. And in, in putting one Ford together, Alan followed what I think a lot of good leaders do, and that is the rule of three. The human mind can't really understand a lot of complex things at one time. And if you keep your messaging to threes, it really works. And one forward was simply one team, one plan, one goal. And it matched up exactly with Ford's small, medium, and large cars, trucks, and utilities um, going on around the world. Alan knew exactly what he was doing. So one team, one plan, one goal. And I still have the, the little card that everyone had that hung along their, their employee badge that explained exactly what one Ford was in case you were too thick to actually remember it. It's, it's people working together as a lean global enterprise for automotive leadership. Okay. And it was measured by customer, employee, dealer, investor, supplier, union, and community satisfaction. Right. So everybody was measured on whether they were working together as that lean global enterprise. One plan was restructuring to op operate profitability, accelerating the development of new products that customers want and value, finance the plan, and work together as one team. And then one goal was simply an exciting and viable for delivering profitable growth for all. So it doesn't matter whether you were a manager, whether you were a dealer, whether you were a union member, whether you were a supplier, it was about being profitable. And everybody could get behind that. How do you how do you take that concept? Because I mean, that is, that's very good direction, and I get that. How do you tie that into all the messaging? Is there just a central mantra, that thread that you try to weave into that over the years? Yeah, I think everything that we did it it reflected back that that was the corporate plan. Now, obviously, you're going to have different product. Um, commitments and yeah. priorities throughout the year. But the communications team knew that our job was to help support the company, help support its products, and to rebuild the company's reputation. And everything that we did all moved in that same direction, right? And every time we would talk about Ford's ingenuity and in technology or its commitment to sustainability or what have you, it would all tie back to how it fit into the one Ford plan. And it, it just became a mantra. I mean, Alan signed every email with one Ford, one team, one plan, one goal. You know, it's at the top of everyone's mind. Um, we were talking about these priorities in meetings. Um, we would consistently uh, share documents. And, and my, my role was really on the on the communications team. And the communications team was really the nerve center for the company. We were there to respond to and to proactively uh, work on messaging when something was happening in the news. 
whether it was uh, a natural disaster, whether it was a product reveal, uh, whether it was an appearance in front of some governmental oversight board, we were there at the center of it all. And we knew everything that was going on within the company. And that put us in the position to lead on that messaging and to help our colleagues stay on that messaging as well. You know what you guys did so well, in my opinion, in, in, in watching this? And again, I watched it closely because, you know, of, um, again, Detroit being the city of my birth, I grew up there. So I have a natural affiliation with the city and follow it closely. What to me, what Ford did so well as compared to maybe some of the competition and, and other, um, other industries learning about social and all that. When, for example, a natural disaster occurred or something major happened in the news, you responded as a, I don't want to say a person, um, what's the word I want? You didn't sell every two seconds. Is that a good way to put that? Um, you, you responded as a human. There you go. There was humanity woven into the way that Ford engaged with everyone through these channels. Well, that wasn't a mistake. You know, I think first of all, right. in the digital space, we knew we weren't going to make any friends if we sounded stilted and, and, and corporate. And what helped us actually was the fact that the founder's name was still on the company's logo. Uh, and Henry Ford, for the first 40 years of that company, personified Ford Motor Company. And there was still a lot of Henry Ford alive in the company while I was there, still is today. You look at where Ford is now and how they're, you know, kind of reassessing the priorities of a major automaker in the 21st century. It comes down to a lot of the ingenuity that Henry Ford had all those years ago and, and tapping into partners to make it happen. And having the, the specter of Henry behind us and the Ford family that still had the controlling stake in the company gave us license to act more human than your average company. You know, there's a, there's a very good example of this. And I think we talked about it, I think one of the last times you and I spoke. For those that aren't familiar with Ford, like you said, it's been in the family now for decades. And if I remember right, Bill Ford, I think it's Bill Ford Jr., was the CEO and he actually stepped down. He, he, he recognized that he shouldn't be the leader of, when I say the leader, he shouldn't be the CEO of the company that bears his family's names. That's a very human act. That's absolutely right. That was the hallmark of leadership, even though he was yeah. stepping down as the CEO. I mean, he still retained the executive chairman role. It's not like he completely abdicated right. from the company. But he knew he wasn't the one who had the, the skill set to lead the company where it needed to go next. And to have the humility to realize that, to have the emotional intelligence to be able to recognize that and then to take action and, and to take action so definitively that uh, his, his uh, successor uh, brought the company back from the brink and really placed it in the future, um, that was really something indeed. Um, I'm, I'm busy writing notes uh, for the listeners right now because Scott keeps throwing out some serious gems that when we talk about the role of social media and leadership in the second half of the show, I'm coming back to. So, and he's doing this on the fly because I did not prep you before this call, Scott. <laughs> That's where we were going to go. I sprung it on him. All right. So, so one was the one Ford approach that, that Alan instituted. Another one was around accountability. 
So created accountability and collaboration across the leadership teams. Um, and, and you were held, obviously, accountable as executing across the plan. I know one of my favorite stories about um, um, Alan when he came in was about the red light or the red, green, yellow status, the RAG status meeting. Um, for, for listeners that aren't familiar, do you, you want to give the background of that story? I love that story. So, so Alan brought a, a model to Ford called the BPR, the Business Plan Review. And every week from 7 a.m. to 10.30 a.m., the entire executive team would go up to the Thunderbird room upon the 11th floor of uh, Ford's executive building, would sit at this round table. And there were cameras in the middle of, uh, of, of the table that would uh, catch you, and, and there would be screens next to the camera so you could see your counterparts in Asia, Pacific, and South America, and Europe, and all around the world. And it, it looked like a scene out of Dr. Strangelove, although not to, <laughs> not to that scale, right? But Alan would sit in the in the circle there and give every executive five to 10 minutes to report on how they were performing against plan and to call out any things that needed attention. And everyone was to code their projects or their initiatives with red, yellow, or green. It showed the progress against the plan. And in the first meeting that Alan held in September of 06, he showed up and every single executive brought their charts just like they were instructed to. And they were all labeled green. Amazing. <laughs> right. And Alan goes, all right, this is, this is amazing. Uh, could, but could somebody tell me how it is that we're on course to lose $17 billion a year and everything is hunky-dory? <laughs> and, and he reminded them, he said, look. We have to be honest with ourselves and with each other. And this is not about blame. This is about uncovering the truth. And in the very next meeting, they came back. And Mark Fields, who actually went on to uh, succeed Allen in the role of CEO eventually, uh, had a big, bright red mark on his. And people looked around to see if his head was going to get chopped <laughs> off, figuratively speaking. And, and Allen said, this is great. And he got up and he stood and he started clapping for Mark to applaud him for his courage and his honesty. And then immediately what happened after that is an executive across the table said, oh, you know what? We had a similar issue happen last year on this other vehicle <laughs> launch. And then an engineer down in South America said, we did too, and we think we found a solution for it. Let's get together. And Alan said, see, this is exactly how it's supposed to work. It's about sharing knowledge, not hoarding knowledge. It's about admitting weakness and finding a path forward with each other rather than trying to hide it for the sake of our own hubris, our own, uh, our own political expediency uh, within the company. Uh, if I remember right, Alan had an engineering background. He came from Boeing. That's exactly right. He spent 30 plus years at Boeing and he, yeah. had, he brought that engineer's mind to it. And yet, at the same time, he was like no engineer I've ever met in my life. Oh, that's a good compliment. I mean that in the nicest way possible. That really is. Yeah, well, I mean, he was, he was warm and affectionate and interested and compassionate. Uh, he still wanted results. You know, he was still a hard-nosed yeah. businessman at the end of it and, and relied on data as any engineer would. But he did it with much more 
uh, empathy than any executive I've ever seen. Well, I think this becomes evident in that last point. So we talked about the power of three, right? Focusing on three points. So we talked about that executing the one forward plan. We talked about accountability. And the last one, I think, does tie back to his engineering background and bringing that to Ford. He really focused them in as a, he called it a mobility company. I think uh, I could adopt that a little bit and say uh, a technology company. I think Alan really understood the role technology was going to play throughout um, the company throughout the vehicles themselves and throughout communication. For So for your example, using social channels to engage with customers. I, and I remember the one I thought that was the most successful. It was the, I don't remember the car line. It was one that you rolled out where you actually asked your customers to, I think, do it like a running blog on the story. What, what, what brand was that again? You're talking about the um, Fiesta movement? There it is, the Fiesta movement. Another one, when I first read about it, went, oh, that's going to bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why I'm not in marketing. <laughs> this is why I'm not in social media. This is why I don't work for Brain Trust. So, can you talk a little bit about what that program was and, and, and how in the world you sold that internally? Well, I, I didn't do the selling, I, I supported it. Um, but okay. it, it was something I absolutely believed in because this, this, this was about the Fiesta, which was the first chance for. Ford to start down this road of, of one Ford uh, by, by proving it with its vehicles. Um, the vehicle was set to launch in Europe and they got in on the tail end of the development process there to say, yeah, you know what? We need to bring this to, to the United States as well. It's a small car. Um, it, it, it would become Ford's smallest car in its uh, North American lineup. Um, but with uh, rising gas prices and, and uh, where the oil market was at the time, they said, we need a more fuel-efficient car here. And we think it would really speak to millennials. Even back then, millennials were getting their undue attention. Because of the, uh, the, the development lag, it would, it would preview in Europe a year before it would come to the United States. And we said, well, let's use that to our advantage. Let's bring a 100 of those... European spec vehicles over to the United States, knowing full well that they're pretty much going to be the same when they get here, um, but bring them over to the, to the United States a year in advance and give them to 100 influencers for six months where they'd get free gas and insurance. And all they had to do was to complete one video a month for us. Uh, but guess what? These influencers lived their lives on social media. They were creating videos all the time. They were on Twitter. They were on Facebook. They were on Flickr back before there was Instagram. Um, and even better, they were out in the real world driving their car around for people to see. This was before we knew what influencers, it wasn't even a term back then, right? I mean, this is before the the world we live in now, where everybody thinks they are one. I mean, it was it was on the early stages of it, but but we knew yeah. that if we did this, we could do it at scale, right, with a hundred of them. And I think what what made it even more interesting is that we said, let's take all of their content that they're putting out there. We grab all their feeds, you know, their Twitter feed, their blog feeds, their yeah. YouTube feeds. And everything they create, let's just feed it into a Ford-owned website, which at the time was FiestaMovement.com, unfiltered, untouched by Ford in real time. So brave, by the way. That took some doing, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Because they're like, well, what if? What if they say something bad about our car? 
Well, you know what? We're using this as a giant feedback mechanism as well. For any complaints they had about the vehicles, we would have an engineering team and a product development team uh, assigned to them to take that feedback and to build it back into the process, right? So they were listening all the time. And as it turns out, simply by giving people the freedom to be themselves, it kind of freed us up from having to worry about a lot of that because they were so genuine in their approach and so honest. And suddenly it became not uh, mouthpieces of Ford, but simply a hundred people who, again, somebody in that hundred has to seem like quote unquote me, right? Because that's who people believe, someone like me. If they couldn't find somebody who reflected their values or their spirit in that 100, then we did a crappy job of selecting those people. Well, we always talk about voice of the customer, right? This is truly <laughs> the unfiltered voice of the customer. When was that again? What, what year was that? That was in 2009. Okay. Wow. By the way, looking back at that, the, the timing of that for folks that are listening now, they're like, yeah, that's, that's normal. 2009? No, it wasn't. I can think of, I'm trying to think of anything along the lines of that similar in the industry and nothing is screaming to mind right now. Because you had to remember in 2009, distrust in corporate incorporations was probably at an all-time high. It was. Well, you know, you're coming off of the bankruptcy. Yeah. You're coming off of, you know, the, the, the whole uh, uh, carpocalypse, you know, particularly for the auto industry. Yeah. But there was a lot of distrust yeah. in, in Wall Street and corporations overall. Yeah. Again, timing and execution is everything. So, so we have just spent about 30 minutes talking about the leadership of Alan Malawi, who I'm now going to try to get to run for president in 2020 based on everything I just heard. <laughs> I don't care what party. Uh, just run, Alan, run. Um, so I want to shift a little bit, Scott, um, and, and really get your take on this. Um, because as, as the listeners can tell, again, you've lived through this and you execute this now. You really, um, you have the ability to take a, a plan and do the hardest part, which is execute against the plan. As somebody who leads um, projects with banks, for example, in my role, it's one of the hardest things to get done. Everybody has an idea, hardly anybody can execute. And that's, and you did it at scale with a company that was going through one of the roughest times in, in modern history, um, and again, at a global scale. So I wanna take a look at, at, in particular, social media and leadership, because I believe we live in a time of a, a massive void in leadership, um, pretty much as a whole, but I'm gonna focus a lot on social media because it's some, become such an integral part of our lives. And I'm gonna start this with an actual quote if you don't mind. So this is by Chamath Paula Fatita, who was from uh, ex-Facebook executive, and apologies for slaughtering your name. But back in December, um, he, he was talking at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and he was talking about social media and recommending people take a hard break from it. And this is what he said. The short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops we've created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. It's not an American problem. This isn't about Russians. This is a global problem. So I'm not saying Ford was in that exact shape in 2006 when Alan took over, but there's some similarities there. We've got, we have a, an engagement channel, social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you, you take your pick. 
that I think has drifted from what we thought it was going to be, at least in my opinion, which was one where we're able to engage in, in conversations with one another to echo chambers of just pure, at times, hate. Do you think I'm over-exaggerating? Not really. Um, you know, if you want to go back and, um, you know, look at the history of how we got here, I think the great promise of the online space was that there would be more conversations, there would be more dialogue. And I hate to say it because, you know, many of my best friends are marketers, but marketing ruined it. And to me, wow. we, we, saw, wow. we saw the potential of what it could be in the early days before the scale of Facebook and to a lesser point, Google, uh, kind of dictated the direction that marketers were taking. Uh, that suddenly, Facebook, which ha had until those times been pretty much a, uh, a friends and family and, you know, hobbyist or, or even, you know, even some early brand pages, a, a community rather than a, a platform. Uh, but when Facebook turned on advertising, we took what we always knew. You can go back to the origins of billboard advertising and television in its earliest days. Really, television was simply radio commercials with moving pictures, right? But we took that yeah. and we, we, we transferred it to the internet in the internet's earliest days with banner ads and pop-ups and uh, you know interruptive videos and all that. And then we took that in turn and plopped that on top of social. So you've got an advertising model that's broken many times, you know, the, the, the twice broken ad model, and we've simply not learned our lesson. So we take what we know, and we've used the lowest common denominator because humans are lazy and simply bastardized every new social platform that comes along. And there's a <laughs> one of my favorite sites for a long time is someecards.com. And they put out these these really interesting vignette, uh, you know, kind of cartoons. And one is a man and a woman hiking through wilderness in this wonderful vista uh, off in the background. And he's got, you know, kind of one of these hiking poles and a floppy hat. And he turns to her and he says, let's ruin something with advertising. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we've gotten ourselves, where, you know, Facebook has now, they're not only an advertising platform, they are a media platform. And we've seen in recent months where they've had to kind of back out of where they are to the point now where brands and publishers are all kinds of upset because suddenly organic reach is confirmed as being dead. And, and you wonder how we got here? I mean, hey, I remember the Coca-Cola Facebook page back in the fall of 2008 when it was simply run by a couple of fans of Coca-Cola. And the company did all that it could to actually take that over from them and continue to operate it as a community platform, as a customer-centric platform. Um, those days are long gone because of marketers' proclivity to simply spew whatever it is they want to promote in front of people and to deprioritize the feedback mechanism and the conversation that these platforms were originally built for. That, that is one heck of a statement. I actually wrote that down about marketing and ruining it. I mean, it's, I think about that though. Google is basically makes its money off of ads, right? I mean, they are, they are 
and, and I'll actually find the stats because I don't remember off my head, but the, the domination they have over old print, over old forms of media, whether it be TV news, television, you take your pick. Um, you're right. I mean, it's just that's, that's where the majority of their revenue had come from was advertising. I remember when Facebook, yeah, I remember the, the movie uh, the, about Facebook, the social network. Yeah. Where it was, when are we going to do ads? When are we going to do ads? When are we going to do ads? Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> they did ads. Uh, yeah, we went there. Am- Amazon's going to be next. You know, uh, they're, they're moving into this space uh, too. And Amazon right now makes most of their money off of uh, AWS, their hosting services. Right. And it's not a stretch to see them as another major advertiser. They're in everyone's house now. That's listening true. to everything you say with that echo or echo dot. Well, that's the the model for that, right? Is to be able to do targeted personalized ads as part of the engagement. Ugh, it's the uh, it's the movie uh, Minority Report where Tom Cruise is walking, um, is running through that mall, and every every ad is engaging with him because it recognizes his retina. Oh God, that's awful. By the way, how do you how do you fix that? That's higher brain trust. I don't know. <laughs> how do what do we do? See, the, the stuff that we're focused on is, yeah. is less advertising and marketing centric. And it's more about what do you do with the customer data that you have? And more importantly, to ensure that you don't fall into the trap of turning your customer data over to someone else. Why should Google own it? Why should Amazon own yeah. it? Why don't you own it? Right. And do something yeah. with it. And I think that's, you know, we, we've heard the phrase data is the new oil. Um, I don't think it's new oil. I think it's always been um, oil. It's always been around. Um, and I, I do think, I love that statement you made just earlier where you said we, we applied, we, humans are lazy. We just applied the old model to a, to a new, um, new channel or a, a new delivery mechanism. We just took old radio ads, put them into television ads, put them into um, billboards. Yeah, we, just, it, we, we didn't evolve with the technology whatsoever. That's right. And, you know, I I was a classics major as an undergrad. And I have come to realize over time how valuable that education was because it made me realize that humans simply haven't changed over the course of thousands of years. We we still (laughs) act the same way that we were acting in the Roman Empire and and further on. Yeah, the technology Mm -hmm. has changed and the way we interact, but we still fundamentally as humans want the same kinds of things out of life. And our team at Brain Trust Partners is so valuable. Is we, we're not mobile technologists. We're not digital strategists. We are human behavioralists, first and foremost. And if you can wrap your head around that and get down to the core basics of what people are looking for out of an experience, then it doesn't matter what technology or solution that we recommend in the end. That's, you just use the same phrase that um, I interviewed Brian Solis about a year or two ago. And he said the, I think he used almost the same phraseology, right? A human behavioralist. It's, it is amazing that we have thousands of years of history to look back on at how humans engage. And we still suck at engaging with humans. <laughs> amazing. Well, let's, I want to take this one step further because you, you are a, an industry leader. All right. You, you've been in those roles. Um, you're doing it now with Brain Trust. When we take a look at the the role of a leader of an organization, and again, I don't care if it's politics, I don't care if it's uh, industry, entertainment. As a leader, the the lessons from that you saw with Alan 
um, at Ford and what you, you are doing, especially when it comes to social. I'm going to read back some of the things you said when you talked about Alan. And I want to apply these, say, to a couple of people in leadership today without naming names, but I'll say we'll say names. You said humility, understanding the importance of messaging and, and honesty in that messaging, accountability, and not, and not passing blame, but focusing on, on reality and facts. We could just stop here. <laughs> or we could take a leap and say, what the hell, right? Um, when you look out in the world today, who do you look at to say kind of fits those, those, those totems that you just set out when it comes to leadership? Is there anyone? And I'm, I'm not trying to be depressing here because I can say who the antithesis of it is in my own opinion. And unfortunately, it's leadership in the United States right now. I think we see, we see a lot of examples every day of people that exhibit traits that we don't admire. I think the people that, well, first of all, Stand up for those who don't have a voice of their own is important, you know, and any leader yeah. is uh, is advocating on behalf of the entire company. You know, they've been selected by the board for this position uh, and they are the voice of the customer. They're the voice of the employee. They're the voice of the vendors, suppliers, uh, and, and all the other folks that we used to worry about at Ford. Um, and, and, in Alan's parlance, it's about being a servant first. Servant leadership, I think, is a concept that is not talked about enough. And it doesn't matter whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 10 company or you are a civic leader. Uh, you are serving other people in that role. And you were selected or elected, depending on uh, how you got there, to serve and you're not there for your own gratification. You're not there for your own enrichment. You are there to help other people out. And and Alan's humility, I think, came through uh, time and again with that. And and reminding us in sitting down to tackle hard issues that it was important first to understand, then to be understood. Right? And going into yeah, every approach like that. It's it's one of the beatitudes, I think, or one of the it, it, Peter or Paul or one of one of the uh, early guys there. Uh, it's and again, it's a simple human concept that has withstood the tests of time. And reaching down and grasping into that very fundamental human need, because of course he knows the other person wants to be heard, and he has it within his within his power to allow them to be heard and to feel like they were heard. It's the most empowering thing you can do as a leader is to give someone else a voice. You know, the concept of servant leadership. I looked behind my, on my bookcase as you were saying that. I've got the book by Ken Blanchard, you know, Servant Leader. That came out in 2003. The concept, again, the concept, the idea isn't new. The execution, so few can execute against that. And I think it... Especially at, at senior leadership roles, when you don't take ownership of that, the, the detriment not only to your company or to your country, it, it goes down to community and society. It's the loss of community. And that to me, when I look at the impact that this, this void of leadership right now that we're seeing um, to some degree in the US and, and globally, um, and also the, the impact that 
technology has had. That, that's what I worry is a sense of community um, and, and losing that. And I really do. I look at my kids and, and that's where I want. I'll tell you a rule we actually have in our home. And I, I'm a tech guy, right? I have Apple products. There are other products, folks, but I have Apple products all throughout my home. And my kids do too, teenage kids. But one of the things we do when their friends come over is we actually have a bowl that all the phones go in. Because if we didn't do that, <laughs> basically what happens is they all go upstairs and they're texting each other on their phone in the same room. And just, no, I'm sorry. Um, I know I'm a technologist and I embrace that as part of my life. But it's the same with, with you and I, Scott. Um, I have followed you and we have, we have tweeted back and forth. We've engaged in social channels. But until we actually have conversations like this, um, and we don't have to be in the same room, I think. community. To some degree, you can do. You can use technology to have a community. You do that. Let's go ahead and dive in for five minutes. We're going down a rabbit hole, everybody. I'm sorry, Sherlock Holmes. Oh my God, here we go, Scott Monty. You Sherlockian, you. Um, you have the greatest knowledge base of Sherlock trivia I've ever seen in my life. You've been in love with him and and the and the works of this since I think you were 15 years old. But you are engaged in a massive community of other folks who are in love with Sherlock Holmes, right? And you have a community there. You've had a community since I think the age of fifteen with this. Yeah, I mean, it first started out with a local group in Connecticut that met twice a year. I was introduced to them, and uh, I just I, I knew I had this interest in Sherlock Holmes, and so did they. And I showed up. We didn't have to talk about the character all night long, but it was everyone from plumbers to presidents uh, that had this interest, and it was literally my first social network. Realizing that you've got a group of like-minded people where you can kind of let your hair down and build relationships. And and we all have different kinds of those, whether it's through work, yeah. through hobbies, through sports, through our kids' activities, you name it. Uh, there are multiple, quote-unquote, social networks. And the value there, I think, is you you can certainly extract a lot from it. You know, that, that it refreshes you, it encourages you, it gives you new ideas, but it also matters a great deal what you contribute to it. It, it could simply be your presence, your active presence from time to time. Uh, it could be by asking smart questions. It could be by uh, sharing information to help enrich the lives of others. Uh, and it's simply a metaphor for, uh, for life, uh, for leadership, for anything you do. It's, it's along the similar lines. You know, that's a fantastic point, that, that idea that you just can't sit on the sidelines and not engage. The, the engagement aspect is huge, right? It's, it's, it's taking that step. And, you know, engagement requires, and a conversation requires two people talking <laughs> and actually listening to each other. And at times having different opinions and being okay with that. That's almost a lost art, isn't it? I, I think it is, actually, unfortunately. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with debate, spirited debate. I mean, I love that. I, I actually took a class, an oral presentation in college, and one section of it was Oxford-style debate. And a lot of it required thinking on your feet. But in, in doing so, you really had to be listening. There, there are so many people that I run into that – simply wait for silence to fill with their own point of view 
rather than listening actively with what the other person is saying, absorbing it and responding thoughtfully with something that acknowledges what the other person said. Again, back to Alan's point about uh, helping people feel like they've been understood. Yeah, you know, I was about to, right before you said that, I was about to say that's one of the things I really enjoy about you and in talking with you is you are a great listener. Because you are so good, I think, at the art of listening, say I was to sit down with my kids or, or folks that work for me, is there a book you recommend or is there someone you recommend they follow? Because I do believe that's something you can learn, the, the art of listening. Well, <laughs> this is going to be a little controversial. Um, look, I've been doing one of my Sherlock Holmes podcasts for almost 11 years, and it is an interview-based show. I have a co-host who is based in New Jersey, so we connect over the internet, and we interview interesting people. And it's kind of like fresh air for Sherlock Holmes fans. And I realized that the art of interviewing really comes down to the art of listening. And there are three interviewers that I have come across in my time that I think are worth emulating, and, and each for a variety of reasons. Now, take, take this down, because you're, you're going to... I am. Not, I am. All, not all this is for the kids, though, so I'm going to warn you. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I will go in, in temporal order, in chronological order. The first is Johnny Carson. Now, he's no longer on the air, and there's a whole generation of people who don't even have any idea who Johnny Carson is. But at one point in American history, literally the whole country watched Johnny Carson. There, there, were, there were three stations that you could watch at 1130 at night, and, and he was one of them. And he was certainly the most entertaining. And if you noticed, when Johnny Carson had people come over to the panel right, which is the, the, the chair and couch next to his desk, and he would sit there and interview them. I don't care whether it's uh, Robin Williams, Jimmy Stewart, Jonathan Winters, Lucille Ball, or the potato chip lady from Iowa. Johnny would treat them all the same. And he took great interest in what they did. He made them the star. He made them the center of attention. He could have easily wisecracked like Letterman always did and tried to become the focus, but he always put it back on them because he knew he was interviewing some of the most interesting people in the world. And he prepared religiously. He read and read and read, whether it was current events or whether it was specific to their background he was really remarkably well-read so that when it came time for him to interact with them, whether it was about their lives or whether it was something in common that they were talking about, he was well-informed. Okay, so Johnny Carson, it, it's the lesson of preparedness and of not making yourself the center of attention and listening well. Larry King, who has been on the air longer than God, <laughs> That's I, true. I think he's got an internet program now. Um, legendary interviewer uses no notes. No notes. How does he do it? He is insanely curious about people. He shows an active interest in what they're talking to him about. And again, great listener. So maybe he was planning in his head to go in one direction with them. He immediately turns it based on what they just said and keeps the conversation going. 
And the last one, this is where it gets a little more controversial, is Howard Stern. Now, Howard Stern has a reputation for, well, all the things that Howard Stern has a <laughs> reputation for. However, I think he is one of the greatest interviewers alive today. Why? Because he makes people feel comfortable and to let their guard down. And he does his research as well. And obviously, he has a staff that feeds him a lot of information. But he's got a whole host of things in front of him. But make sure that it's natural and just gets people to talk from the bottom of their heart and the bottom of their soul and to reveal things to him that they wouldn't reveal to anyone else. So it's really a sense of comfort and familiarity that Howard brings. Yeah, so here's three notes I took just now. With Johnny Carson, treat everyone the same, make them the star. Larry King, be insanely curious and have an active interest. And Howard Stern, be natural, be comfortable, be comforting for them. Imagine if we applied that to marketing. <laughs> you just There's your book. Or any leadership <laughs> role for that matter. Uh, that's the truth, isn't it? Oh, Lord. That's a, that's a really good point. Every time, and I'll bring this back to Alan Mulally as a, as a nice bookend. Every time I would have the opportunity to congratulate Alan on some success of the company, he would, he would do one of two things. One, he would pivot it to recognize members of the team or, the, or, or a certain division that led those efforts. But invariably, almost every time, he would simply say, it's an honor to serve. It's an honor to serve a global and American icon. As if to say, thank you, and I recognize the importance of the role that I'm playing. And, and to simply leave it at that. He wouldn't brag about it. He wouldn't get all puffed up. He would simply take the compliment and recognize the, the impact that it had in his life. This show is crafted for you by the folks at 11FS. We're building banks for the future. Find out more at 11FS.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Every star helps. Today's episode was edited by Michael Bailey and produced by Laura Watkins, Ollie Judge, and myself. I'm Sam Mall, and this has been Connection Interrupted. Thanks for listening. <laughs>